All right, Faye. So one of the things that I'm really excited about is this recently released CHAPS trial. And I saw on the OBG project that they've got a great summary out already. Yeah, so if you want to keep up to date to all those studies that are coming out, not only at OBGYN, but also other practice-changing studies and other specialties, make sure you go onto the OBG project and sign up so that you can keep up to date. Fourth-year residents can get the premium project, OBG First, absolutely free. It allows you to create your own library, save resources for you to be able to access later, as well as see something like the second trimester ultrasound atlas that lets you get brushed up on all those images that are going to show up on your written boards. And of course, if you are a resident in general, you can get their core curriculum uh, on their website. So make sure you go ahead and go onto our website to figure out a little bit more about how to sign up for the OBG project and also how to sign up for OBG first. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs over coffee. All right, Nick. So today we're going to continue looking at the landmark trials in OBGYN. And um, I think a lot of people have probably been waiting for us to do this because today we're talking about the ARRIVE trial. So what are our learning objectives for today? All right. Yeah, we're coming into the frying pan here, Faye. So, <laughs> but no, we're gonna, we're gonna review the data from the ARRIVE trial. Um, again, continuing that course of studies that every OBGYN resident should know. We're gonna talk about the reasons behind why we do what we do or why we do what we're trying to do or starting to do. Um, and then we'll review some follow-up from ARRIVE in terms of how we're practicing now um, and what criticisms are out there too. So as we start off all of these, Faye, the ARRIVE trial, while a really cute acronym, was not exactly the official title. It wasn't. And they reached really hard for this acronym. <laughs> the actual title of this paper was Labor Induction Versus Expectant Management in Low-Risk Nulliparous Women. And I think when they registered the trial in clinical trials, ARRIVE stood for a randomized trial using the R in trial of induction versus expected management. So like I said, reaching real hard <laughs> if, if I had one criticism for this paper. <laughs> In terms of the background of this paper, so as with many big OBGYN studies that are based in the United States, it was done by the MFMU and the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. And the first author was Dr. William Groman from Northwestern University. And the study was done in 41 hospitals participating in the MFMU. So huge study. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in August of 2018. And the reason it was done was that in previous observational trials, there appeared to be worse perinatal outcomes um, when delivery occurred before 39 weeks in zero day was done without medical indication than when there was delivery at full term. So for example, if a patient either requested a, a delivery before that for social reasons, or you know potentially um, if they wanted to deliver with a certain physician and decided to just have an induction before 39 weeks. 
Um, however, you know, there was also thought um, by providers that delivery after 41 weeks can lead to increased perinatal risks, like increasing risk of stillbirth. And also, um, potentially uh, inaccurately, there was thought that the act of induction of labor itself should be avoided if there was no reason to induce because induction itself led to an increased risk of things like C-section and possible adverse maternal outcomes. In terms of previous studies, there was one previous um, study in the UK of 619 women that were 35 years and older that actually did show this increased risk of C-section with induction of labor. With all of this background information, the actual objective of this study was to see if elective induction at 39 weeks would result, number one, in lower risk of composite outcome of perinatal death or severe neonatal complications than expectant management among low-risk nulliparous women. The key thing here is that the purpose of the trial was to look at neonatal outcomes as the primary outcome, and only the secondary outcome was to look at certain maternal outcomes, which we'll talk about. And the other thing to take away is that their population that they're going to be talking about is low-risk, nulliparous patients, not everybody. All right, Nick. Um, so I, I feel like I'm creeping into the methods here, but talk to us about how they did this study. Yeah. So as you told us, Faye, this study was done at 41 centers in the U.S. that are part of the Maternal Fetal Medicine Units Network, or MFMU, um, most of these being large academic centers. And low-risk nulliparous patients were included in the study. And you know, low-risk, high-risk is always like a sort of ambiguous term to define. But here they defined it as no maternal or fetal indication to be delivered before 40 weeks and five days. So Know the usual things like hypertensive disorders, fetal growth restriction, etc. At the time of enrollment, they needed to be between 34 weeks and 38 weeks and six days. And dating needed to be certain by LMP or dating by ultrasound needed to be done before 21 weeks. The patients needed to have a live singleton fetus and cephalic presentation with no other contraindication to vaginal delivery and no cesarean section planned. And patients who had consented to participate previously, again with enrollment being between 34 weeks and 38 and 6, had to be reassessed between 38 and 38 and 6 to ensure that they did not have some new indication for delivery that would make them ineligible at that point. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, patients who were in labor at that point or who had prom or bleeding at that point were not eligible for inclusion in the study ultimately. Um, all right. So, Faye, with that sort of as our participants, how did this get done and what were they looking for? Yeah. So for patients who were eligible, they were randomized in a one-to-one -one ratio to either one group, which was the labor induction group, and they were assigned to undergo an induction of labor between 39 weeks and zero days to 39 weeks and four days, um, or expected management. So um, these patients had to forgo elective induction before 40 weeks and five days, and they had to have delivery initiated no later than 42 weeks and two days. Um, of note, there was no specific induction protocol for either group, and so they just relied on um, the induction protocol that was set by each specific institution. The randomization was stratified to site. Participants were then followed, and the data was then abstracted from their chart. Um, and patients also had 
interviews um, to rate their labor pain on a Likert scale from one to 10. And they also rated their experience um, of their labor with something called the labor agentry scale, um, first immediately after delivery, so within that time when they were in the hospital, and then again in the postpartum period in about six weeks or so. So um, knowing all of that, Nick, what was the outcome that they were looking for? So in this study, the primary outcome was a composite of perinatal death or severe neonatal complications. So again, looking at baby things. And this can consist of one or multiple of many things. Um, And again, we won't list everything for brevity's sake, but of course, perinatal death, need for respiratory support within the first 72 hours of life, APGAR of three or less at five minutes, seizures, HIE, subgaleal hemorrhage, no, again, bad things that happen to the baby. And then there were secondary outcomes, but they specified primarily a main secondary outcome that was maternal, and that was the rate of cesarean section. And there were a number of other neonatal and maternal secondary outcomes that, again, in the study, we we won't list out here, um, but there was, again, this sort of predefined primary secondary outcome, if you will. And there were other pre-specified subgroups for analysis, such as race, age, greater than or equal to 35 or under 35, BMI, um, the modified Bishop score at the time of randomization uh, to being less than five versus five or more. Um, So again, a couple of different ways that they tried to slice and dice um, prior to enrolling, um, looking at whether those things might modify um, induction success or complications for neonates. So what did they find, Faye? Yeah, so in terms of the participants, uh, they recruited them from March of 2014 to August of 2017. And out of over 22,000 eligible patients, um, 6,106 of them, or 27% of the eligible patients, um, were consented and were randomized. So of those, 3,062 got in the induction arm and 3,044 went to the expectant management arm. Um, Of note, 63% of these patients did not have a favorable bishop score, meaning a bishops of less than five. And overall, when we looked at the demographics of the two groups, um, both groups had very similar demographics overall. You know, they talked a little bit about loss to follow-up and protocol violation. Three in the induction group and seven in the expectant management group were lost to follow-up. And 6% of the induction group and 4.6% of the expectant management group had some type of protocol violation. But overall, they had a lot of patients, over 6,000, and it seemed like very few of them were lost to follow-up and there were very few protocol violations overall. What about their primary and secondary outcomes, Nick? From those outcomes, those who were in the induction group to start had a shorter median time from randomization to delivery than those who were in the expectant management group, as you might expect, seven days versus 12 days. Women in the induction group underwent delivery at a significantly earlier median gestational age, again, as you might expect, 39.3 weeks versus 40.0 weeks. Um, And then when we get to that primary outcome, This occurred in 4.3% of neonates who were in the induction group versus 5.4% in the expectant management group. Um, The relative risk of this was 0.8 with that 95% confidence interval going from 0.64 to 1.00, right on the nose. Yeah. Um, 
And then they tried an adjustment here for previous pregnancy loss, which did not change that primary outcome. Um, and then when they looked at some other secondary outcomes for the neonates, um, neonates in the induction group had a shorter duration of respiratory support and total hospital stay versus those in the expectant management group. The other secondary outcomes were the same. From the maternal perspective, um, cesarean delivery occurred 18.6% of the time in the induction group versus 22.2% of the time in the expectant management group. And this relative risk was 0.84 um, and statistically significant, so that confidence interval did not cross or touch one. Uh, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy were present in 9% of the induction group versus 14% of the expectant management group, again with relative risk of 0.64 there. Um, interestingly, there were also higher scores on the labor agentry scale, both immediately and four to eight weeks after delivery in the induction group, um, which is really interesting finding that I'm sure we'll yeah. talk a little more on. Um, but just the fact that patients found agency in this sort of more medicalized birth is kind of kind of interesting. Median labor pain was also reported as less as an eight versus a nine in the induction versus the expectant management group. Of note though, both for that labor agentry scale and the median labor pain score, the scores were statistically significantly different, but the overall difference was kind of small between that, or the absolute difference was small. Patients in the induction group spent more time on labor and delivery units, but their postpartum stay ultimately was shorter, and subgroup analyses didn't demonstrate any significant difference between groups. So really interesting findings there, Faye. Mm -hmm. So let's start talking about impact and what happened after the study. What's happening over there in Pennsylvania? Yeah, I don't know about, you know, at the University of Washington, but here we have definitely begun offering 39-week inductions to all nulliparous patients if they desire them. Um, so certainly we're not, you know, forcing people to have 39-week inductions, but we're saying, hey, this is an option if you want to be on that elective induction list, which we have created. And ACOG has also made a statement that it is reasonable to offer 39-week induction as long as we also take patient preference into consideration. So again, not recommended, but certainly offered. And you know, I think the reasoning here is based off of this study, it seems that people take the study to mean that at 39 weeks, when we have an induction of labor, we're not necessarily worsening neonatal outcomes, right? Because that was the same for the two groups. Um, and incidentally, we found that we were also potentially decreasing C-section rates and hypertensive disorders of pregnancy per this study. And, you know, they would also argue that really there's not a huge difference in the labor agency scale or pain score overall um, since, you know, clinically, even though statistically they were significantly different with them favoring the induction of labor group, clinically the difference was not all that big. And so it seems like why not? It's only going to lead to good things if we induce patients, right? But there certainly is another side to this story, Nick. Yeah. So after the ARRIVE trial was published, um, the American College of Nurse Midwives, or ACNM, responded pretty strongly to the ARRIVE trial study results and discussed a couple of potential criticisms and concerns. Um, they noted that by increasing induction of labors, um, we'd also potentially be increasing the use of hospital resources like staff, hospital bed capacity, et cetera. Um, and they also noted that the study criteria were very strict, including only low risk and leprous patients, and were 
careful to say that we should hesitate to broaden the outcomes of this trial, broaden the applicability, and bringing it to all patients. Um, so again, noting sort of that selection criteria is being rather strict. Um, again, to, to sum it up in a phrase, they were concerned that we'd be offering induction to everyone without knowing any of the actual societal implications. With that criticism, there are certainly, I think, other folks have echoed the concern about cost and hospital resources. Um, and so friend of the podcast, um, former guest Brett Einerson in 2020 had a nice study that looked at cost, reviewing health system costs of elective induction at 39 weeks versus expectant management in Utah hospitals, um, and didn't find any cost difference between the two strategies. Um, the maternal outpatient antenatal costs were 47% lower in the induction arm, and intrapartum and delivery costs uh, were 16.9% higher. Um, so really interesting paper there um, mm -hmm. that we'll link to on the website. But I guess, Faye, what we should look at is sort of how we practice now and what are people doing? Yeah, I think um, just to talk about this on like a personal level, you know, we were training, literally half of our residency occurred before the ARRIVE trial yeah, came yeah. out and the other half occurred after the ARRIVE trial came out. So I, th I thought it was really interesting for us to be in training during that time because I felt like my intern and my second year, we like didn't really induce that many mm -hmm. people. And so we, everybody just came in and labor and we saw a lot of people getting to 41 weeks, et cetera, before we induced them. Um, and then I felt like, you know, starting our third year maybe or like our third year into our fourth year, I was like, huh, where'd all the labor go? <laughs> Everyone's getting induced. Yeah. So that was one thing that I personally thought was very interesting. Maybe not a bad thing, but certainly a difference in practice. Um, but on a more national level, there was a study that looked at the rate of induction of labor pre and post arrive. And Gilroy et al. looked at the rates of induction of the country in patients who are nilipris, who started prenatal care by 12 weeks and delivered at 39 weeks or later, both um, a couple of years before the arrive trial and then a couple of years after, also taking into account, you know, COVID and things like that. And what they saw was that there was actually a significant increase in induction of labor. Um, uh, in these nulliparous patients after the ARRIVE trial as we expected and probably as we personally experienced, which was that the rate of induction went up from 30.2% beforehand to 36.1% um, with an, uh, an odds ratio of 1.36. Um, patients were also more likely to deliver before 40 weeks. So again, that was 42.8% after the ARRIVE trial versus 39.9% beforehand. Um, Interestingly, there was less likelihood to have a C-section. So before the ARRIVE trial, the rate of C-section in these um, nulliparous low-risk patients was about 27.9% in the country. And afterwards, it was 27.3%. Um, but 27.3%, I thought was a very interesting number because that is a very different number from 18% that they found in the ARRIVE trial. So potentially, even though there was a decrease in that C-section rate, it doesn't seem to be as profound on a national level um, as compared to the ARRIVE trial. What about you, Nick? What have you guys been doing in your hospitals? Yeah, so I think, you know, the goal is ultimately to practice with this evidence base and I think to be able, as you said, to offer 39-week um, induction. But I think as many folks in terms of dealing with medical staffing crisis across the country right now, um, that's been a lot more challenging to continue to guarantee an offer. Um, and so 
we're certainly we're not alone in terms of having to to work through some of those things um but that has been one challenge i guess in the in the covid era um where right. there may actually be like a very solid argument of you know why wait two other weeks when your patient could get covid during that time period if right. the baby's <laughs> going to do just as well but definitely logistics are a huge part of this um, and i can't wait to see more literature like the stuff that came from dr ironerson and dr gilroy kind of looking at you know the implications the costs of the strategies um, and whether as we kind of do broaden out the elective milliparous induction um, to maybe not just low risk, but sort of low medium risk patients too. Um, right. If we see the same broad benefits that we saw with Arrive. And I think, you know, we had the opportunity uh, in 2019, so a year after the study came out, to pick Dr. Grobman's brain on this podcast. And I think we actually asked him, so does this mean that we should just electively induce everybody at 39 weeks? And he was kind of horrified at the idea and said, you know, no, the purpose of this study really was to say, if you have to induce somebody at 39 weeks or someone wants to be induced at 39 weeks, it's not a horrible thing to do. It's And, and we have now with good data that it's not going to change the neonatal outcomes and it's certainly induction itself does not increase cesarean sections. All right, Faye. Well, I think that does it um, for this review on the ARRIVE trial. Um, you know, I think all of us are sort of living through this. So I don't know if it's kind of worth it to summarize it all because we're living it every day. But I hope that for listeners out there, this has been a sort of helpful overview and summary of the trial and the questions it has raised. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right, so once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Kriogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you love the show, head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at Kriogs Over Coffee 1, on Facebook and Instagram at Kriogs Over Coffee. And if you want to support the show and donate, you can go onto our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Coffee. You can find show notes for this episode as well as all of our previous episodes and the Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, craigsovercoffee.com. And if you want to let us know what you do at your hospital for the ARRIVE trial, have um, any suggestions for future episodes, or have a correction for the show, go ahead and email us, craigsovercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>